Hello, and welcome to the weekly podcast of C2 Church in Columbia, Missouri. Well, happy Easter, everyone. Thanks for joining us here at Christian Chapel. I'm Pastor Jeremy. My Lutheran friends always greeted me on Easter by saying, He is risen. Wow, way to go. We got some Lutherans in here too. All right, that's cool. I love, I love that greeting between Christian brothers and sisters because it is the central focus of Christianity, that he is risen. This is an important day in the life of any church, and around the world, Christians are celebrating Easter, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know it's an important day uh, because, one, people get dressed up. <laughs> two, my wife picks out my outfit on Easter. It's too important of a day to leave that kind of stuff to me, and so... She picks it out for me and color coordinates it, and we're so happy and thankful for that. Happy Easter. I love chocolate and bunnies, too. But we miss the fact sometimes you don't like chocolate or bunnies. Which one? Didn't you? Oh, right. Chocolate bunnies, they are good, too. But sometimes we miss the fact that Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've been in a series called Collide. We've been talking about worldviews colliding. And we've had our, some guests on stage, doctors in science and, and uh, medical doctors with us on stage talking about worldviews colliding and how we can carry our faith when it seems that there are other views that conflict with our views. And how do we navigate that? And so I, if you haven't, I, I encourage you to listen to the podcast. Perhaps uh, we'll encourage or even challenge you to faith and uh, give you some things to think about. Uh, Good Friday podcast is out as well. It's sort of the, the lead into this, but certainly today's message you'll understand on its own. Today we're talking about life and death colliding. And that's what happens with the resurrection. Life and death collide in this moment of history. Life and death collide in this person we call Jesus. We talk about worldviews colliding. This is the, a big deal. Those questions on the, the bumper video preceding my message ask the questions of where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And how do I get there? Leads to the question, what happens after I die? And there's a lot of conflicting worldviews about the truth to that question. The, the answer to that question then informs how you make decisions, how you live your life, this encompasses what your worldview is. But for Christians, the answer lies in one thing and, and one thing alone, the resurrection. That's what it all boils down to. If you've got your smart device with you, a phone or iPad or whatever, maybe you'll uh, get on social media and blast something out like this. Life and death will collide. That, that's a given. For me, the result has been determined by Jesus himself, resurrection. You can follow us on version as well if you have that app. We have the notes there. They'll be on the screen. It all boils down to the resurrection. This is the crux of the matter. Do you know that word, the crux, actually is also used in, in drama? The third act in any play is called the crux. It's what everything in Acts 1 and 2 have led up to is this moment of resolution in Act 3. It's the crux of the matter. Have you heard that phrase before? You know that word, the crux, actually means the cross? It's where we get the word crucifixion from. This is the crux of the matter for all of history 
and all of Christianity. You know, in rock climbing, they use the the word the crux. It's, It's the hardest move that's made in a given route while climbing a vertical wall. And if you make it through that move, or in my case, if you can even get to that move, if you can get to that place and make it through that, that move, that sequence of moves, you move through the crux and you can complete the climb, get to the top. But it's that crucial moment. It's that one sequence of moves. It might be an outcrop. It might be some really long reach or some sort of difficult move. But isn't that what happens with Christianity? And certainly the resurrection is the crux of the matter. It's the one move. It's the one thing that most people will bump up against. There's a collision of worldviews. Jesus, I can, I'm okay with. God, yeah, why not? Jesus was a good teacher, but this whole resurrection thing, I'm not so sure about. But that's the crux of the matter. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then why are we having a discussion that's the crux of the matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes it this way, starting in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. He writes this, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless And so is your faith, and I'm unemployed. More than that, that's not in there. I just added that, by the way. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses of God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. He concludes that passage by saying, and we are of all people most to be pitied. We should be pitied as Christians because we've been deceived. Paul was a guy who believed in God. You could say he's one of those mental assenters to a higher power. Oh yeah, I believe there's a God out there. But he goes even further. He says, that God I believe in, I believe revealed himself in the work and person of Jesus Christ. This is the crux of the matter. This is the collision. And as we've learned over this series, if there's a collision, it would leave evidence. And so perhaps we can look at some evidence today. Lee Strobel did this very thing. He's an award-winning journalist from the Chicago Tribune. He has a degree in law studies from Yale. And he does just this. His wife has a life-transforming encounter and experience with Christ. It begins begins to change her, and he notices these changes in her actions and in her attitudes. And he, as an unbeliever, as an atheist, decides, as a skeptic, he's going to investigate the evidence. He does this for a living. He he was award-winning. He blew open many cases. He decides to take that, that approach with Christ and the resurrection. He begins to investigate. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. Perhaps you would challenge your own thinking. By reading that book. And he takes this approach of examining the evidence. I certainly won't unfold that whole book for you today, but that was kind of the inspiration. If there's evidence, it's there, and it will lead us to the truth. And one of those things is Jesus both lived and then literally died 
physically died from crucifixion by the Romans. This is a collision of history. There is a historical record, even outside of the Bible, that Jesus Christ was a real person who really lived and really died. This is historically verifiable. There is nearly universally, it's a universally accepted fact that Jesus was a real person. There really isn't even a scholarly debate going on anymore about whether Jesus, this person Jesus, really lived and really died. Modern medicine and historical evidence has gone so far as to prove that there was a death, that no person experiencing what Jesus was historically recorded to have experienced in the crucifixion could have survived that. Let's just say the Romans were really good at what they did. No one survived crucifixion. That was kind of the point. They were making a statement. You can't let one person live because then everybody thinks they can be let off the cross and then you just have nothing but chaos. But everybody who experienced crucifixion died. The evidence proves that there was a death. Let's look at it this way, though. In examining his death, how do we move from there was a death to there was a resurrection? And th- think about this. Let's take some, somebody perhaps we all are more familiar with, JFK. It's a little closer in time, right? A little more familiar with his circumstances. JFK was killed, right? We've got the evidence. We can watch the video. We can read the accounts. We can hear eyewitness testimony. But let's say that a group of his closest uh, political partners, those closest to him, said, you know what, Lyndon Johnson, we don't want him as president. So let's, here's an idea. Let's, we can't fake his death, but we can tell everybody that he's risen from the dead. Yeah, let's do that. That sounds like a great idea. And so they get together in the, in the hours after this tragedy. They have enough wherewithal to pull together and fabricate this story and then begin to disperse it throughout. I'm sure a few people might go, oh, okay, cool, I'm glad he survived. It's good to hear. But eventually you think somebody might go, can, can we see him? You, you think we could talk to him? Perhaps he could come on television and just say, hey guys, I'm okay. Just a little bit of a head wound. It, Right? You would be able to have some sort of interaction with him. The testimony doesn't go that way, though, does it? And think how hard, as time has gone, how hard it would be for me if I decided today, you know what? I'm going to make up a story that JFK rose from the dead. How hard would it be for me then to turn that information, that evidence, into my story about JFK rising from the dead? It would be very, very difficult for me to turn that, into, that, that story into a myth and a legend of his resurrection because the evidence and the testimony do not line up. And then to build traditions around it, let's say these guys pulled this off and then they build traditions around JFK's resurrection, still without any sort of proof that he lived again. But that's the central belief of Christianity is that Jesus rose again, not that he just died. History shows us that. But then think about this. If those 
people around JFK decided they wanted to do this. So much so that they were willing to stake their lives, their relationships and their families, their wealth. Ain't no politician going to stake it on that. They were willing to stake their fame, their fortune, everything on that. This lie, what they know to be, is a lie that they fabricated. It just doesn't make sense. And then to convince others with no evidence is is still harder still. We don't just have the collision of history. We have the collision of the gospel testimonies. Most researchers will agree that the documents that we call the gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, can be trusted as documents of antiquity. Experts would call them historically reliable. And these are non-Christian experts as well, would call the New Testament, and specifically the Gospels, would consider them historically reliable. In fact, one author went on to say, it is humanity's most reliable ancient document because they have thousands of copies of the New Testament, all dated closely to the original writing. This author goes on to say, in fact, we are more sure the New Testament remains as it was originally written by its authors, eyewitnesses, than we are sure of writings we attribute to Plato, Aristotle, or Homer's Iliad. Even ancient historians, both Jew, Greek, and Romans, confirm the major events that are presented in the New Testament, uh, even though they were not believers themselves. Not one archaeological find has conflicted with the biblical, biblical records. Lee Strobel, in his investigation, decided to test this theory. He called the Smithsonian. When in doubt, call the Smithsonian, I guess, right? With the Bible, there was evidence. There was a trail. They could verify facts, events. So he said, well, what about the Book of Mormon? Can you verify the the people, places, and events in that? And they said, we have zero evidence that any of that actually took place or those places or people even existed. All this gives us a solid foundation for believing that what we read today in Scripture is what the original authors wrote and experienced in real life. It was real places. They didn't make it up. Historians concur. Archaeology concurs. The four gospel biographies are in agreement. The preservation of document copies is remarkable. There is superior accuracy in the multiple translations. This is the collision of testimony. Testimony in the court of law is given primacy. It's reliable. Think about what it would have taken for these disciples to pull this off. First of all, this is a pretty dysfunctional group before this happens, (laughs) right? They're disorganized, unreliable, and dysfunctional. Now their leader is arrested, gruesomely beat, and then crucified. They are distraught and depressed. And yet they somehow gathered together within 24 to 48 hours to concoct this story and then go steal his body? Did you know that messing with a grave under Roman law was punishable by death? (laughs) Hours before this, they were all running scared and denying they knew him because they were scared to die. But you're telling me hours after that, they're like, hey, 
Let's risk our lives on a lie. Let's, let's make everybody believe that he rose from the dead. <laughs> April Fools! <laughs> did Easter fall on April Fools? Day? No, I don't know. It didn't. It didn't. I'll just take my word for it. Not only that, but they're going to try to pull off this, this prank, so to speak, the very place that Jesus had lived, taught, performed miracles. Did they find his doppelganger? I don't know. It would be exceptionally difficult to pull off in the very place that Jesus had been very well known. It would be very difficult unless he rose from the dead. And there were witnesses. There were verifiable witnesses. And they record it. One of the things about Scripture that gets me is that if this is myth and legend, they did a really poor job of writing it because they include facts about themselves as failures. When I write myths about myself, I don't include my failures. (laughs) Right? It's really hard to become legendary status when your failures are all written down. They put names and dates and people, all these things that could be verified. They put useless facts in here as if they're writing and just recording history as it was unfolding. You could say, well, nobody saw the resurrection. Let me ask you this. When they prove the guilt of a criminal, does someone actually have to see the crime committed for someone to be convicted? No. The evidence just begins to line up as it does with Jesus. Think about when the disciples record this story, they base it on the testimony of women. That doesn't mean a whole lot in our society because generally, I believe women. In fact, when my wife says something, I always do it. <laughs> but in ancient Jewish culture, the, the, uh, a woman was not even allowed to testify in court. Her testimony was not deemed reliable. And yet here, if they're going to start a legend and a myth, why would they start it off on the wrong foot? By quoting the testimony of women. Unless it really happened. Unless Jesus really did rise from the dead. You have to understand that the, the shift for these conservative Jews was not like the average American who changes their belief at, at probably... Uh, as many times as they changed their cell phone provider, right? It was, well, you know, I've tried to change cell phone, but that's pretty difficult. You try to quit, and then they put you on the phone with somebody else who just tries to convince you not to quit. But for for the average conservative Jew, switching belief systems wasn't this, oh, you know what, hey, that guy sounds good. Let's go along with what he's saying. It was a radical shift in their worldview that was unlikely and even rare to happen. Maybe follow another Jewish teacher, but to completely walk into a different worldview, unheard of. And here is a teacher, a carpenter from Nazareth. What a radical shift. And then to die for something that they knew was a lie? Again, I I come back to that. Perhaps they were brainwashed, but I come back to the fact that they could observe for themselves and verify the fact of his resurrection. They didn't have to take somebody's word for it. 
They could verify it for themselves. I think about in World War II, you read the stories of the, the Japanese who convinced the people of the nation of Japan that when the Americans come, we're going to be these evil, ruthless people. None of them can verify that. None of them experienced a relationship with an American. And they were convinced to do something based on a lie because they couldn't verify it. Yet think of the disciples and the other followers. They could verify for themselves if indeed Jesus was risen, they could find out. They could experience. And this is the collision of testimony. People don't die for what they know is a lie. The creed of the, uh, of the apostles was passed down. This is a, a, a big deal in antiquity uh, writing. Historians agree that what's written in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, is the ancient creed that was started nearly immediately after Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, which is important in historical documents. Let's read it together in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes this, For what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So he's verifying that this creed that follows has been passed on to him which would have been the tradition the oral tradition of his culture important things and facts were often memorized and uh, put into creeds so he says this is of central importance this is what it hinges on that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures he appeared to cephas and then to the twelve After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, then to all the apostles, and last of all, appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Wait a minute. You're going to go ahead and cite that 500 people saw Jesus? And then you're going to go ahead and say, and they're living, and so if you don't believe me, go ask them. That's, that's pretty gutsy. If you're living for a lie, you don't do that. It would be easy to disprove. And the formal structure of this creed leads us to believe that this was not a later invention of Paul's. He had no motivation for it. We'll get that to that in a second. But upon this creed is built the two ordinances of, of the church, one we participated in earlier today, communion. That the believers of this Somewhat unknown carpenter's son from Nazareth, they celebrate his gruesome death upon a cross. Hmm. What's so important about that? Then they build the second ordinance of the church, which is water baptism, where you go under the water and brought back up. Central to the belief of Christianity is that We participate in Christ's death, but more importantly, his resurrection. When we go under the water, we're baptized in identification with that death. We're washed, cleaned, come up out of the water into new life in Jesus. And they built their faith around that. This is the center of belief. Everything hinged on this moment. This is the reason his teachings carried weight see most religions are built around the teachings that if you take away the teacher it doesn't really matter but with christianity it's centered on the person christ 
Tim Keller writes it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And they stake their lives upon that. They stake their lives upon it. That's the last collision we come to today. The collision of experience. The evidence of believers. Think about the way Christianity has spread, not only in those first days, but throughout this span of 2,000 years. It's spread by the testimony of individuals. Compare and contrast that to the spread of Islam. Even today, it's spread by the, the threat of force and intimidation, violence, militants, and murder. You can turn on the evening news and see that. And this is how Islam began in the same way. But Christianity doesn't promise anything as Islam does, power and wealth. It promises none of those things. In fact, it promises the opposite. It promises persecution, suffering, and the giving up of all earthly possessions. Yay, motivational speech. (laughs) Right? Count me in on that one. There must be something greater. Christianity hasn't spread by military conquest. It's spread because of changed lives. It's spread through love and grace, not murder and war. And I remember today our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, specifically in the Middle East, who are giving their lives today for their beliefs. And I have to, have to ask you this, what are they dying for? When 21 Egyptian Christians are kneeling in the sand, asked to renounce their faith in Christ before their execution, and yet video experts confirm that what they are muttering before their death is not nonsensical, it's not pleads, it's prayers and worship. As they gave their lives that day, They believed in an experience, not just evidence of history or evidence of testimony of years past, but in their own personal encounter with the living Christ. They weren't dying for a lie. They weren't dying for some promise of some far-off land. It was because of personal experience. They wanted to go to heaven not because of the promise of something they got, but because of the promise of relationship with somebody somebody they had already encountered, one, Jesus Christ. No one dies for a lie. Christianity spread because of firsthand experience, because of the testimony of people. Look at the creed we just cited. The Apostle Paul, if you read history, he was the persecutor of the church. He was a religious zealot of the Jewish faith. How does somebody who is known historically as a murderer of Christians suddenly become the proponent of the church, a Christian himself? How in the world does that happen? Because someone stacked the evidence to him? Hey, Saul, you need to look at this evidence. I need to explain this to you again. Saul had a personal experience with the living Christ. It cites this person, James, the brother of Jesus, James is the younger brother of Jesus and it reports in scripture, in history, 
verifies that James did not believe in his own brother. I mean, he believed he existed. He just was kind of that brother who was kind of embarrassed about his brother. My brother's here. You get what I'm talking about. (laughs) We're talking about, we're going through high school yearbooks yesterday, and he says, we went to high school together? (laughs) I totally get it. Totally get it. James did not believe, place faith in his brother. He was embarrassed by him. Jesus, would you cut it out? You're embarrassing the family. But something happened because James gives his life for the gospel of Jesus at the end of his life. What changes? Certainly it wasn't just the crucifixion and the death. That just makes you really sad. Something must have changed. And I believe that James had an encounter with the living Christ. And it changed everything. I have a friend named Rachel who shared this story with me. She said, I truly thought I could never be free from the noise in my mind and from the drugs that I needed. And one day in my bedroom, I cried out to God, please, if you are real, fix me. I encountered the living Jesus, she said, and and was flooded with his love and I realized his mercy and grace in my life. I recognized all the times he had protected me and kept me safe. I fell in love with Jesus as I learned about his character and I've never been the same since. Free from drugs and addiction to receive peace and joy. Not because someone convinced her of some historical evidence but because she had a personal encounter with the living Christ. The interesting thing about the New Testament is not just historical fact. This is the collision that we must come to, is not that there's a collision of history that he really existed, that the grave is empty. Think about the the Jewish leaders who could have proved that the grave wasn't empty, but they themselves, as recorded in Scripture and other historical accounts, that the grave was empty, and so they came up with this story that his followers had robbed the grave. All they had to do was say, no, 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 no. He's right in there. But they themselves said the grave was empty. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? The empty grave. It's historically verifiable. Beyond that, you collide with your own experience. The resurrection can be experienced today. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. That's a bold claim. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who uh, believe in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Isn't that the crux of the matter? Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to bring dead people back to life. Rachel's story is verification of that. This is why Christians sing about this unknown carpenter from Nazareth who died a brutal death. Christians are the only ones who really sing like this and proclaim these things in the way and the manner that we do. We're exuberant about the execution of our leader because of the resurrection. Because it means 
that he backed up his promises and his words by coming back from the dead. Dead people don't usually do that. And our beliefs seem pretty ridiculous unless it's true. And so the collision for you and me this morning is what do I do with that? What do I do with the historical evidence? His death, the empty grave, the testimony, the reliability of the documents. But even more so, could you possibly experience the risen Christ yourself? (laughs) That's kind of what the New Testament is all about. It's one giant dare. I dare you to prove me wrong and him right. So you don't have to take my word for it. Prove it yourself. Experience it yourself. Have an encounter with Jesus. Make that your prayer. Jesus, if you're real, fix me. I need to pray that every day. (laughs) Fix me. Can't fix ourselves. All this leads me to the collision of one thing. The resurrection is not only plausible and possible, but probable. It's the best explanation for the evidence of my life and so many of your lives. Is the evidence of your testimony of what Jesus has done. The question this morning is do you believe? In this holy moment, church, would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Perhaps you're here this morning, if you never placed your faith in Christ, never let him lead your life. I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm simply asking you to take that dare, Jesus, if you're real. I trust Jesus enough that he'll reveal himself to you. If that's you this morning and you want to make that declaration of faith as so many in this room already have done, I'm going to ask you to do a simple thing. We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to point you out. We're going to celebrate your new life. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in just a second if you want to participate in that step of faith, faith in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That's you this morning. All around this room, would you just simply lift your hand up and and then take it back down. I'm just going to pray with you. Again, I'm not going to point you out. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? Anybody else? Church, we're going to pray out loud with all those who raised their hands this morning because we ourselves are going to commit our, our lives again to Jesus. And so would you pray this out loud with me, church, with all those who raise their hand. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me and demonstrating that love through the person of Jesus. I accept his sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. And I accept the new life I have because of his resurrection. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.
Hey, if you made that your prayer this morning for the first time, there's a connection card in the chair back in front of you. I'd love for you to mark the box. Just let us know. We've got a, a free uh, book that we'd love to put in your hands to begin helping you in your, your new journey uh, with us. We encourage you to find a Bible-believing church, which we are one, so made that easy for you. The last thing we want to do today is give the opportunity to participate in our annual Easter offering. It always goes to some mission project. We're going to participate uh, with our ministry called King's Castle in El Salvador. And as Rick mentioned earlier, it's going to go to medical supplies as well as helping with a a construction item that we've been working on for several years with them. Thank you for your, your participation. If we each do our little bit, God will take care of the rest. And we believe that. Thank you for your faithfulness. The band's going to play one last song, a a declaration for all who believe. I hope you'll sing along with us. Hey, we are so glad you listened in. If you made a decision to follow Christ today or would like more information about a deeper relationship with Christ, we would love to hear from you. Simply email nextsteps at c2church.com. 